Denis Pakirov, welcome to Radio Wolf. Thank you. I'm very happy to talk to you. You are a lecturer in the University of Kharkiv in the Ukraine. You are a metamodern thinker, if I may say so. And uh, you work about development in culture and consciousness and politics. Uh, and you recently are preparing an article, as I heard, about the character and nature of the regime in Russia. And I think uh, to understand the nature of this war, it is also important to understand the nature of the Russian regime. So this is what I would like to talk with you about from an Ukrainian, uh, Eastern European uh, perspective. Um, when you start to talk about the Russian regime, where would you think is the best starting point? Uh, today's regime in Russia, uh, it, it's important to understand that this war for people who were studying Putin and his regime for a long time now, uh, of course, it was a uh, surprise, but it was not something out of the ordinary of what would you expect from uh, him and his people, because his first presidential term uh, started in the circumstances of this agitation and war. Before they became president, uh, he became president for the first time in 2000. Uh, it is now widely accepted that uh, the FSB, Russian Security Service, of uh, which Putin was then a member and a head, at that time, they um, conducted a kind of, they actually called it a special operation to bomb the apartment buildings in uh, Moscow and in some other cities in, inside Russia to create um, fear in people, to instill people with the feeling of danger, which comes from this secretive other. And in, in those times, it were the Chechens. And from that fertile ground, the Putin, who came from this strongman security service background, he was able to uh, position himself as a strong leader, as someone with a strong hand, as Russians say, who can um, like get things into order. And so it's as if the um, context, a certain ontology of war uh, created the demand for a, um, for a, let's say, guy like Putin as a president, as a strong leader. So it's not like Putin was, as I uh, write it, was made a right uh, person, right character for the job of the president. It's like the whole situation, whole context of Russian life was manipulated so as to make Putin a right candidate for the presidency. And he indeed became such a right candidate. And his first election, he had won um, democratically. People elected him. So it's like a curve that uh, 
bent from the beginning of his reign to today, uh, 2022, which is the same curve, the, which I understand as a, um, in terms like this, people, the security servicemen, the FSB, who are the um, descendants of the famous Cheka, KGB, and Kavadeh in Russia. Uh, people like this are required in the society. If the society is in the state of danger, if it faces aggression from the foreign force, from foreign threats, and uh, in the time of peace, there is no much need for the authority of such people, especially not at the top of the hierarchy. And these people, the KGB people, understood that if they can artificially put Russia in the state of being surrounded by enemies, being surrounded by threats without and within, like by foreign agents, as they call them now, uh, if, if Russia can be put in such um, state of constant fear, then we can come to power and then um, cling to power and never return it to people so that they can exercise it democratically. I, mean, I, I lived uh, around 1993 for some time in Moscow and, and that was the time of, of Yeltsin. And uh, at that time, Moscow was really a place of turmoil. And I, 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 I remember that every kind of vegetable that uh, uh, you, you brought for, uh, from uh, Armenia or places like that, people had to pay fees to kind of bandits on the way. Uh, uh, in, in, in Moscow, basically, when you had a car, uh, you needed uh, some security guard in a safe place. Otherwise, you can be sure that your car was taken away. In, the, in, that, in, in that time, there was, uh, on one hand, such a naive uh, hope for the West. I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, it's hard to perceive right now uh, or to conceive this right now, but, but living there, basically everything from America was coming from paradise. I was there when uh, McDonald's opened. In, 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 in Moscow. And there was a very naive uh, pro-Western anti-Soviet attitude and, and Yeltsin was a personification of this, but also uh, people that were suffering a lot. Um, even for me, it made sense that something had to happen, that, uh, that, uh, that, that somehow uh, the state had to intervene and bring some order into in, in, into this. So uh, I also remember. I think that's what you're referring to the uh, the, the, uh, the the bombings, the bombing of this movie theater, uh, uh, and uh, already at that time the suspicion that uh, the the KGB, if you just call it the KGB, already had the FSB name at that time. I think uh, what what was behind that. If you think about Russia at that time, 19, beginning of 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when you compare it with uh, the Soviet Union uh, and its kind of 70 years uh, ideolo ideological path that it wanted to go, uh, what happens or what you see right now is a strange hybrid version of something that... Um, in some way tries to create a, a democratic uh, facade at least, 
has a highly um, uh, authoritarian structure. And some people even say the main difference between the Soviet Union and the situation right now is that the KGB was under the control of the Communist Party. Now the, K the KGB has no control. Would you agree? Uh, um, recently, uh, a book came out by Catherine Belton called Putin's People. And uh, she's an excellent author from Financial Times. She spent a lot of time in Russia. Uh, and she argued, and I, I think correctly, that um, the KGB men at the end of the Soviet Union, they realized that, um, and these are the people we have to understand that these are the people who are governed first and foremost by the imperial ambition. They are sincerely interested in Russia being a global power, a geopolitical force, uh, which uh, other countries recognize, other countries recognize. These people realized that uh, communist economy of Soviet Union uh, cannot compete with the West, that Soviet Union was not being able to, not even militarily, to uh, be on par with NATO. One of those men was uh, Vladimir Putin in Eastern Germany. He was a liaison officer in Dresden. Uh, like many other KGB people, he actually had to um, conduct this work of smuggling Western technology to the Soviet Union. And he, like many other people in KGB, must have realized that something is wrong. Why are we doing this? Why are we smuggling, basically stealing, all these technologies from the West and uh, bringing them here. There is something wrong with the, how the Soviet Union operates. And they realized that, uh, again, they can conduct a kind of operation of um, in stealing Soviet Union with capitalism, with free market, so as to uh, compete with the West but at the same time to make this transition happen in such a way so as to retain and preserve their power, the KGB power. And so when the Soviet Union started to fall apart and various businesses, cooperatives, as they called it in Russia, started to appear, the KGB men had a head start. They already put a lot of um, joint business ventures in the West. Uh, they controlled the diaspora that uh, dispersed in the West. Some of the, their people then already in the 1990s, in the beginning of 1990s, um, made friends with Donald Trump and then would corrupt him through certain uh, schemes which they used, all with the help of the uh, so-called party of wealth, the wealth of the Communist Party, which was in the hands of the KGB men when the collapse of Soviet Union was happening. So what I'm trying to say is that when the collapse was happening, the KGB men controlled all the money that was um, being accumulated in mm. the central uh, government in Moscow, in the party reserves and everything. So even the first uh, 
millionaires and billionaires that appeared then, like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the most famous one probably. Uh, he was nurtured by the KGB men, looking from the local Moscow Komsomol, the youth organization of Communist Party, and uh, founded to begin his uh, businesses. So the KGB men basically uh, staged the collapse, the transition, so as to right, make um, Soviet Union competitive, but at the same time, so as to preserve the, the power, the authority of the KGB. It didn't happen exactly as they wanted it to happen because Soviet Union collapsed into different states one of them Ukraine. So that was a huge problem for them. But the second part, the re retaining of power, that they done um, perfectly. One of their people, Putin, became president in 10 years after the collapse. So here we have this uh, partially accomplished uh, tasks of the operation of transition of Soviet Union to free market economy. There's one uh, dispute that I'm aware of, uh, talking about the history and the nature of Putin's regime. One side is arguing that uh, amongst the ranks of the KGB, uh, the identity was always a Russian imperial identity and uh, was from the beginning very much uh, talking about the Euro-Asian a cultural sphere and the, the need of Russian domination of this sphere and, and tried to create an ideology ar ar around this. The other side was argue, is arguing that at least in the beginning, uh, Putin had kind of a serious interest uh, to find a, a way to work together with the West that even had a democratic uh, or orientation and it is basically because of the humiliation of Western American NATO politics, uh, the, the pushing of NATO East and, and uh, uh, weapon tre uh, treatments that the Americans canceled uh, one-sidedly. So that there was a phase of humiliation, which I think is, is, is uh, fair to say that basically this changed Putin. Um, what is your assessment? Yeah, I absolutely agree that Putin, in the beginning of his career as a president, he wanted to basically make friends with the West. He wanted to make Russia, if not part of the EU, then at least to cooperate with the European Union very closely as partners. And he wanted to he wanted Russia to become a part of NATO. Uh, it's uh, it it is a fact. The thing is. How do we understand the fact that it didn't happen? Uh, I think that the reason is uh, that Putin understood the cooperation in different terms as the West did. America, for all its imperial uh, problems, bases um, its operations overseas, let's say, on actual respect for the, at least if it doesn't uh, go against American 
national interest in some very crucial way. America tries to cooperate with respect to the democratic uh, voice of different countries. So when Eastern European countries like Poland, uh, Latvia and Estonia wanted to join NATO, the question for, um, well, for America and for the West in general was, well, we have to respect the self-legislation, the democracy of these countries. They have a voice and it has to be listened to. And Putin from the beginning, and, and this is, I think, what defines the character of his regime. Like many other people from the security services, Putin did not believe uh, in the idea that people can be subjects of democracy, subjects of politics, that some small countries or some minorities of people, let's say, they can be uh, their own policy makers, that they can decide their fate. Putin wanted to meet with Bush, um, have a conversation secretly. He's a secret agent. He wanted to secretly have a conversation and to divide the world into influencers. And the West was not interested in that. And I think that it was, in a certain way, it was a problem of misunderstanding. Putin thought that he will be able to um, carve out a piece of the world as Russian sphere mm, of influence, basically. Uh, and he thought that he will be able to do it with the help of, well, on the premise, or let's say on the merit of Russia being a military force. Uh, it's an old, right? It's an old idea from Plato, from the enemy of Plato, Thrasymachus from the Republic that might makes right. Putin wanted the world order, world architecture. He still wants a world order, international order that is based on this premise. Spheres of influence, world powers, divide the world and rule it, basically an imperial global order. Uh, that's why I believe uh, there are many reasons for the war, but in terms of international architecture that Putin wants to uh, usher in on the world, I think this is the reason he wants um, he wants to return us to the age of empires, basically. Let's, uh, let's talk about this a little bit, about this return to empire uh, as, a, as a political uh, sphere right now. And uh, if you look at this from a meta-modern perspective, and uh, you, you see... Uh, the development of European societies from pre-modern, modern, modern post-modern societies and uh, the rise and fall of European empires and uh, the post-modern democracy with all, it, with, with all its failures and also the civilizational crisis of the West uh, that we are in right now. That, that it seems that uh, it is quite obvious on the world scale that uh, 
the US American dominance is at least in a deep crisis. And uh, the question is, where are we going? Is the next century uh, a Chinese century? Uh, are is our societies, our liberal democratic societies, again, with all their failures and, and, and all their uh, questionable sides uh, that they have, are they basically a dead end? And uh, we see a reaction to that in many parts of the world. Uh, often these reactions are accompanied uh, by a, a rise of um, religious ideology in fundamentalist forms. Uh, you, you can see this uh, in Turkey, you can see this in Iran, you can see this in India, and also uh, the, the Russian regime is strongly identified with a Russian orthodoxy. And there is a anti-modernist, anti-globalist, and anti-liberal attitude to all of that. Um, what, what is happening there? What is this? And what is the specific Russian form of this? Yes. At least the specific Russian form of this uh, return of autocracy, as it is sometimes called, or Gideon Brackman, a, uh, an Englishman, English author, he calls it the age of strongmen the age of strongmen. I, I, I believe that uh, the specifically Russian revolt against the modern world stems from um, the uh, failure of the communist regime and then of the Russian liberal regime. Mm -hmm. So we have in the communist uh, period, we have the state that tries to um, get inside people's private lives, to teach people how to live, how to be citizens, right? Uh, little children in schools, they had the lessons of political information when they had to learn about how the communist ideology works, how the party works, what's happening, what's happening during the congresses of the party, stuff like that. Uh, and when people grow up, their private relationships could be put on trial, uh, let's say, by the um, work collective, collectives, where the works, for example, I could work on some kind of factory and I could have a um, affair with some uh, woman, and if it becomes public knowledge, we will come to the meeting on my factory, and some kind of official from the state will say that, well, I am ethically, morally unfit to be a proper citizen of the Soviet Union. So, um, to make it short, in the Soviet times, people were very frustrated with the state trying to educate them to be politically active. Then in the 90s, the opposite thing happened. They saw that, well, democracy is now here. Politics is, not, is, is now here. And the free market is here. But we are not getting any, we cannot harvest the promised fruit of the free market. All the wealth ends up 
in uh, the hands of the oligarchs. Uh, and everything is not as we wanted it to be. So what people, I believe, were taught to believe is that politics, public debate, political discourse, conversation means and leads to nothing. That it's uh, just idle talk, which only destabilizes, right? Uh, just shatters the society and the state. It was a kind of despair that led people to believe that, well, in the world like this, where nothing ever happens uh, of importance in the public square, where nothing is decided transparently in the open, when some kind of oligarchs are scheming behind the closed doors of the Yeltsin cabinet in Kremlin. Well, when basically the world is full of this secrets and conspiracies. In a world like this, only the people of great resolve, people of strength, of power, the strong leaders, like Putin, like the KGB men, could bring the order. Mm-hmm. And, and in this regard, I think that Russia must be a um, example, a warning to the West of what happens when the information regime, the public debate, public square becomes a, well, a matter for laughing, right? A laughing stock. Uh, when this happens and people lose faith that they can self-legislate through the political processes in their state, when this happens, people like Putin, Bolsonaro, Victor Orban, Le Pen, Trump, I believe are inevitable. There's also a side to Putin uh, that sometimes discussed, but not too, too much. Uh, it is uh, his relationship to thinkers like Alexander Dugin and his fourth political theory. And uh, Alexander Dugin are Uh, claims to have something that is uh, an integration of uh, basically all anti-liberal ideologies that have been there. Somehow it's a, an integration of uh, of communism and fascism, but beyond, but beyond that, to me, it feels like a new form of fascism that's very much uh, uh, founded on an ethnic, uh, religious identity of the Russian people. And uh, in, in, in At some uh, time, it was very clear right now, it's not so clear that he had a direct influence on Putin. Uh, the interesting thing about someone like Putin, that he is very versed also in postmodern philosophy. He, he he's, All the French philosophers, are, he's very aware, and he's using that in a way, talking uh, using postmodern talk about the relativity, relativity of truth Basically, there are no, no universal values anymore. There, there are different cultural spheres, and there's the American Western culture sphere, but there's the Chinese culture sphere, there's the Japanese, and there's the Russian culture sphere, and we have our own truth. Uh, is there a strange mixture of a regression to pre-modern ethnocentric thinking, integrating at least the language of postmodern 
of, of ideology that are, makes us also understand that this reaction of the Russian regime and the, the people who hold the power there is also a reactionary response to the failures of the West. Yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, example of Dugin is right in point because he exemplified his, this mixture of really uh, being a student of postmodern philosophy, getting it, getting it quite uh, comprehensively, but using it for the sake of Bronze Age, uh, very pre-modern um, purposes of domination, of imperial conquest. So it's important for me that uh, the first book that had a formative impact on Putin, the book he translated from, from German for some reason, I believe, was the book of Julius Evola, the pagan imperialism. And from that point on, he translated some other books by Evola and by René Guénon, I think, yeah, Guénon. Uh, if you look from this perspective, let's say on the difference between uh, today's Russian propaganda, a very successful propaganda, and compare it to the Soviet propaganda, a far less success, su successful propaganda, because in the Soviet times, it was a matter of jokes. Yes, all the television was telling people uh, about a kind of alternative reality, about how the great ideal, uh, a, a, they were creating an ideological picture of how great the life in Soviet Russia is, under communism is, and how bad life under capitalism is. But no one in the Soviet Union really believed, believed uh, in this. Now the propaganda works as uh, you have correctly said, uh, quite differently. It rather tries to make people think that no coherent picture, no ideology, no coherent perspective on reality is possible. We have our own Russian perspective. USA has its own, uh, China has its own, but don't you dare think that there is some kind of transcendent perspective that can judge our Russian perspective. And what it means is that, don't you dare, that there can be some kind of dialogue, some kind of um, conversation uh, that can put on trial what we say through our television screen. And what that means is that, well, if there is no way to judge different perspectives, that perspective, uh, then the only way to well, decide how to live uh, further is to have a war and see which perspective is more powerful. Because if uh, no perspective is imbued with some kind of intrinsic truth, some kind of correspondence to reality, then the only thing that uh, matters is which perspective is more powerful, which perspective can basically just uh, silence all the other perspectives. And this, again, what I think is happening now in, um, with the war. You said in the, in the beginning of the interview uh, that you don't want to make any predictions where things, where things are going. And uh, it is a big question, though, what is the future of 
uh, this regime? Well, can it succeed? Because uh, there are different scenarios uh, that one can think about. Well, one scenario that's um, not the least likely is that there will be kind of an alliance of the new big brother, meaning China, and uh, Russia be being also led by, by the sanctions of the West into the arms of a Chinese-Russian alliance, which would be a new autocratic alliance. And with the multiplicity of crises that we are confronted right now, from the climate crisis to the immigration crisis to the finance crisis, uh, and, and you name it, now we, we, we have, to have the war, the, the future of our society is literally at stake. Uh, what is your a sense how a metamodern perspective can respond to this? Because these are all these outcomes are, uh, uh, th that are the most discussed right now are not metamodern perspectives. They are all kind of for, for forms of regression, for, for forms of going back to uh, uh, dominator structures, going, going back to pre-modern structures. How can a postmodern understanding of the situation find a response to this? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Of course, I feel powerless uh, when confronted with this question. But what I think is that we have to think uh, two things at once. Mm. And actually, I think that today's American government is at times successful with it. So we have to, to think two things at, at once. First, we have to understand that with regard to the autocracies, the tyrannies, all over the world now. It is true that it is the, that um, what they do is not a debating position. It's a kind of mystique of power and violence. And it cannot be argued against. It, cannot, it, it can only be defeated militarily. Uh, that's just the case. And I think that the international alliance that now helps Ukraine to deal with the invasion is a sign of hope because if Ukraine bought uh, the West time, as some people say now, as uh, I think Timothy Snyder now says, if uh, Kiev had fallen in three days and few weeks, then it would be a signal to the autocrats all over the world that yes, that's how you solve your problems. You just use your power, you impose your will, your will, and you become triumphant. But now it doesn't happen. I believe that uh, the war could have been prevented if Putin and Biden and his people, let's say, secretly discussed and divided the world again into spheres of influence. The Ukrainians, uh, Ukraine decided to basically sacrifice itself so that the world is not uh, decided, uh, the fate of the world is not decided by the uh, will of the em empires. So that's, that we have to understand that we cannot uh, appease Putin as we did with Stalin. We cannot do that. We can only break his mystique 
uh, if we show his weakness, as always happens with fascists. They can only be defeated as they are shown that they are weak and insecure. But at the same time, uh, if we approach our enemy with the understanding that he or she understands nothing but power, we ourselves uh, already made ourselves people who think that uh, everything is decided by power, that yourself now understand only power. So we have to return, retain something in the face of this uh, belief, belief that uh, might make right. We have to at the same time think that um, a different kind of world is possible, a different kind of order is possible, one based not on power, but on communication, on conversation, uh, basically. So those, this two contradictory things, uh, I think have to be upheld at the same time. And that for my money will be the kind of metamodern uh, perspective, right? One that combines sincere, like good faith in the possibility of cooperation and creation of something approximate, approximating utopia and the postmodern understanding that in the real world like this, we have to deal with something quite sinister. Mm -hmm. uh, like we have to troubleshoot, as people say. You're saying something very interesting here. As I understand you, you're making the two points that uh, uh, regimes like the Putin regimes uh, out of their nature only understand power. And uh, one has to uh, recognize that, or even to the degree that uh, an appeasement politic like with Stalin is not possible because it's, it's going against the foundation of this regime. You have to uh, respond uh, to this uh, also by, uh, with power in some, in, in, in some way. But at the same time, and on the other side, you are emphasizing something that I would uh, call being the heart of the open society, which is uh, the, the capacity and the promise of dialogue and communication. But basically, a power, and as you said several times, might makes right, uh, is not the last world also in the political sphere, that there is the possibility that we as humans, as a species, don't only insist on power, but there is the capacity uh, for mutual understanding and mutual respect. And that's, in the end, uh, maybe even the foundation of the promise of something like an open society, in particular, something like a meta-modern open society, that the way we come together is not based on uh, uh, power structures alone, but there's something built in that even you could call a spiritual impulse are the capacity of mutual understanding and, and mutual respect. And this is something to, uh, to invest in and also to see that this is something that in itself is a political force, a different a political force than power. It's the political for force of mutual understanding. And there's, the, 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 there's something very human 
uh, and something very uh, respectful in that. But to, 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 to see that this also, I think one can, could make the case in human history even, that power is not everything, that our human history is not only built on power structures, it's also built on structures of mutual understanding and, and mutual cooperation. And uh, one can bank on that. And this is a possible response of a meta-modern understanding that really honors both sides. Do I understand you right, if, if I kind of uh, uh, inter interpret you in this way? Yes, of course. Uh, if you um, base your politics on your own power, on your own might, you become weaker than those potential that the cooperation between self-legislating subjects has, right? We people are created through cooperation. Our society are created by this trust that we have that, right, I give a, I make a promise, you give a promise and we keep it so that we can have a good faith with regard to how we can uh, live together and what we can create together and what a society like this will create will be much more powerful <laughs> than, uh, than that will, which will be created by the society that is based on the vertical of power, that is based on dominance, because there's no creativity in a society like that. And we know that creativity is what actually gives you the real power in uh, the world like ours. And the last thing with this regard, I think, is that um, the warning to the the warning to the West uh, from Russia, I believe, is that um, it is true that Putin is a popular politician. His whole reign, he was making decisions based on the um, popular acclamation, plebiscitary acclamation of this decision, of, based on the popular support. But the problem is that people could not articulate their desires, articulate their will democratically. Yes, they could vote, they could uh, choose on this multi-choice questionnaire, uh, but they could not become the real subjects of democracy. They could not deliberate together and create laws by which they would live. And Putin used the fact that people could not express their will they could only vote, not talk, but only choose. And Putin used this because uh, popular support like this can be manipulated. It can be made whatever the dictator wants because he has all the levers of propaganda. And uh, if I see danger, uh, uh, which in the West somehow reflects what happens happened in Russia. I think it is this, the corruption of democratic, small-scale democratic institutions and of public discourse in general. It's mm. a very interesting analysis because that also would state that one of the key factors of a response to this is organizing the public discourse. So that we find ways in a, in a democratic republic where we not only vote, but we also find structures where a discourse can be developed on a scale where discourse is not 
decided by power structures alone. I mean, you, you never will include power structures. Uh, that would be, I think, an utopian thinking. But you can minimize power structures and consciously organize the public discourse in a way and make this a democratic program, how we uh, design the public discourse so that people can find ways uh, to um, form their understanding in a mutual or uh, uh, co-creative way. And that would be a different model than the authoritarian model. Yes, yes. That will be the model where people will be able to articulate themselves. And people need help with that. This is where I believe you are right. This is where society, the state, government has to invest in. Uh, people have to be taught and uh, given time, space, uh, opportunities to articulate their will democratically, politically, and politely, but not through violence, not through manipulation, not through, let's say, becoming more rich and then uh, lobbying for your interests. Not, not in all those ways, because all those ways are private, uh, secret not political, you have to invest in the open political ways to express and articulate our will. Dennis, thank you for this conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs>